and welcome to Talk About Talk podcast, episode number 130, Communication Skills, Questions and Answers. I've got nine questions from ambitious executives like you that I'm going to answer right now. We're talking dealing with negative people, we're talking networking, we're talking gender differences, we're talking accents, and more. Are you ready? Let's do this. Let's talk about talk. I have to tell you, Q&As are one of my favorite things. I know some people dread the Q&A, probably because they think they're going to be put on the spot and asked a question that they can't answer. Come to think of it, that is a great topic for a future podcast episode, isn't it? So I might be an anomaly here, but I love being on the firing line of a Q&A. Whenever I'm conducting workshops, be it online or in person, I always feel a sense of relief and excitement when it comes to the end. I never know what someone's going to ask me in the Q&A, and I really enjoy hearing what challenges my clients have when it comes to their executive communication. So recently, I've been encouraging you, my listeners, and my clients to ask me questions, and I'm finally going to be answering them here in this podcast episode. By the way, keep the questions coming. I love getting your questions and I hope to have lots more episodes like this. So what you have to do is go to the talkabouttalk.com website and click on record your question for Andrea. If you're feeling shy, you can also type out your question for me in the contact section of the website. You could even send me a message on LinkedIn. There's no excuses, okay? Bring on the questions. By the way, are we connected yet on LinkedIn? Let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. Please call me Andrea. I'm your executive communication coach. I'm also the founder of Talk About Talk. And if you're an ambitious executive with a growth mindset, if you're focused on learning and improving, then you're in the right place. If you go to the talkabouttalk.com website, you'll find many resources there to help you out. There are online tip sheets, corporate workshops, one-on-one coaching, boot camps, the archive of this bi-weekly podcast, and I really hope you'll sign up for the Talk About Talk newsletter. This is a weekly newsletter that arrives in your inbox every week that's like free communication coaching. If you haven't signed up for that newsletter already, I hope you'll do so. All right, let's get into this. Choosing which question to answer first of the nine questions was actually an easy decision. This question is from Adam, an executive from El Dorado Hills in California. Hey, Andrea, this is Adam at Wetzels. My question would be, what is the most common request you receive from executive communicators on the ways they want to improve their communication skills? I chose to answer this question first because it's kind of meta. Adam is turning the tables and asking me, what's the most common question or challenge that I hear from my clients. The truth is, I hear all sorts of questions, but there are some patterns, and these patterns seem to depend on what stage people are at in their careers. So it might not surprise you to learn that earlier in their careers, the more junior people ask me a lot of questions about developing their confidence. They're worried about things like imposter syndrome and speaking up in meetings, And many of them have received feedbacks from their managers telling them that they need to be more vocal and more confident, particularly in meetings. So 
If you're junior in your career and you're suffering from imposter syndrome or if you've been told to speak up, please know you are not alone. Also know that these are things that you can easily overcome with a little bit of practice. This practice could take the form of developing a personal mantra that you used to boost your confidence, you know, like, let's go, Andrea, you got this. It might mean consciously practicing positive self-talk. It might mean practicing deep breathing skills, especially the exhale when you feel that shot of adrenaline. It might even just mean practicing over and over again, as in forcing yourself to get out there and speak up or to volunteer for formal presentations. All of these are things that will help you boost your confidence and help you avoid imposter syndrome. So those are the junior folks. The senior level and C-suite executives that I coach typically do not suffer from imposter syndrome, and they don't need to speak up as much. In fact, many of them know that they need to listen more and talk less. That's interesting, isn't it? How it flips that way. One of the most common questions that I get, though, from senior executives is focused on their personal brand. Many of these executives have very impressive and varied careers. They've worked in all sorts of functions and industries, and they struggle to focus in terms of their professional identity. They struggle with how to succinctly introduce themselves. As an executive communication coach, I have to say that one of the most satisfying things about my job is the opportunity to work with these high-achieving executives and helping them articulate their personal brand and their superpowers. Really, there is nothing like it. So Adam, I hope that answers your question. The most common questions that I get from junior folks are typically related to confidence. And from senior executives, the most common questions that I get are related to professional identity and focusing their professional brand. Speaking of focused, I'm gonna really try to make my answers as succinct as possible here because we do have nine questions to get through. Next, I'm gonna answer a few questions related to dealing with difficult or negative people. Let's start with a question from Loxley Gregory in Ohio. Loxley and I connected on Zoom and he is fantastic. He has so much energy and his focus on self-improvement is so impressive. Here's Loxley. Hello, my name's Loxley Gregory. I had a question for you. When you're having a conversation or dialogue with someone, what is the most proper way to disagree with someone without it becoming a combative argument? Once again, my name's Loxley Gregory. Thank you. All right, Loxley, I'm going to give you three suggestions for how to disagree with someone. Which one of these you employ is going to depend on the context. My first suggestion is to ask questions. I have to say, generally speaking, asking questions is an under-leveraged or underappreciated communication skill. It can also be very challenging, and it's harder than it sounds. Imagine yourself in this context where you hear someone sharing an opinion that you ardently disagree with, and all you're thinking is, no, 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 here's my opinion. Here's why you're wrong and why I'm right. Now, instead, imagine shifting into the mode of asking questions. It's tough, but it's effective. Certainly, these questions that you're gonna ask need to be respectful. They're not insulting or rhetorical questions. They're questions about how that person came to that opinion and even possibly whether they considered other opinions. My second suggestion for how to disagree with someone comes from the world of improv comedy. 
Some of you probably know this tactic. It's two words. Yes, and. As in, yes, I see what you're saying, and I wonder if there's an alternative. Or, yes, that might be true, and there's also something else that might be true. You get the idea. Yes, and. My third suggestion for how to disagree with someone respectfully is simply to agree to disagree. And this literally happened to me today. I was having a conversation with a girlfriend about an upcoming local election, and she asked me who I was voting for. Things got a little heated when she told me she disagreed. She does not support the same candidate. And I said, let's agree to disagree. Then we had a great conversation. So Loxley, those are my three suggestions for how you can respectfully disagree with people. Ask questions, yes and, or explicitly tell the person that you can agree to disagree. And then you can explore the conversation in a productive way. Okay, the next question that I received is through email from Dan, who's the global head of client services at his organization in the Chicago area. Yeah, this is a big job. Let me read his question to you. I'm a firm believer that positivity is contagious. So I try to exude positivity in my meetings because the team will often feed that same positivity back to me. However, the converse is also true. Negativity is not only contagious, but it sucks up all of the positivity in a room and can put a dampening effect on a meeting. How do you prevent a negative person from sucking the energy out of a meeting, Andrea? Please help me. Oh gosh, let me start by saying that we're all working hard these days and sometimes we need to give each other a break. I get the impression though that Dan's a really nice guy. And certainly also the answer to this question would vary depending on whether the negative person is a peer or a subordinate or your boss. More on that interaction with your boss in a minute. But let's assume that in this context, it's a peer or even more likely a subordinate, someone who's reporting to Dan. What can he do? In the moment, say in the middle of the meeting, if this person is being a negative influence, the first thing I would try is simply ignoring the negativity. Almost make it a game. Don't let the person affect your tone or your emotions. Now, I'm not saying ignore the person, ignore the negativity. In fact, you may listen to their perspective, look them in the eye, nod, and then continue with your more positive perspective. If that doesn't work, the second thing I would try is calling it out. You could say, all right, we focused on all the reasons why we cannot do this. Are there reasons why we can or how we can or things that we should do? You might even be more explicit and label the person's negativity. Perhaps call him devil's advocate or label their contrarian view and ask them whether anyone else has a different perspective. So those are two things that I would try in the middle of the meeting, ignoring it or calling it out. But what if this is a chronic situation with the same individual over and over again? Well, this is when I recommend the SCARF model. SCARF's an acronym, S-C-A-R-F. This model was introduced to me by Tamara Finley, a human resources executive who I interviewed for podcast episode number 39, a long time ago. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. The SCARF model was introduced by Dr. David Rock, who also wrote a great book that summarizes this model. And I'll leave a link to that book in the show notes too. According to Dr. Rock, when people, including ourselves, by the way, believe that any of these five factors are under threat, it can adversely affect our behavior. The five factors are status, certainty, 
autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. Did you get that? Scarf. So the idea is that, for example, if your status is being threatened, you will become more negative. Or when you are uncertain, you will become more negative, and so on. The power of this model is that it is a useful diagnosis tool, and it might help you understand why someone may be legitimately negative. And once you've diagnosed their motivation, it makes it easy for you to understand what's really going on and possibly even resolve it. All right, I hope that helps, Dan. Now, here's another question about negativity. This question is from a listener who ultimately quit his job because of his negative boss. Hi, Andrea. I'm a director in one of the big four consulting firm. Um, there's an issue that I have with my boss, and he blames basically me for the team uh, underperforming. They technically accept maybe 20% of the blame, but I believe um, he's indeed 80% of the reason. And then he uses me as a scapegoat to, to provide reporting up to his um, leader. He is a partner and he reports to another partner. I, I made the decision to leave anyways. I landed an opportunity, which I'm going to put my notice soon. But uh, in between, I wanted to make sure I manage this message that I'm having while leaving this organization because I don't want to burn bridges. But at the same time, I want to defend my my actions and, and the way the situation handled. Unfortunately, he was very not professional in handling the situation. And I wanted to get your perspective, if possible, uh, as how I can manage this situation. I appreciate the time. Wow, I can just hear the anguish in his voice, can't you? I remember early in my career when I had a similar experience where my boss's boss actually was very, very negative, and this was extremely stressful for me. My father gave me some fantastic advice that I used then, and I've used it since, and I share it with my clients, and it's this. If there's a senior executive at your organization who is very negative or whose values are not aligned with yours, then ask yourself, does this executive's values reflect the values of the organization? If the answer is yes, then you need to get out. If the answer is no, then chances are that things will sort themselves out. In my case, that is exactly what happened. The executive that I was so concerned about ended up getting fired. True story. The other suggestion that I have is to see if there's an opportunity to explicitly align yourself with this person. And I've done this myself as well, and I've heard stories about other people trying this. Recently, I heard Adam Grant talking about this. And while it might seem a little bit awkward and maybe even risky, it often works. And yes, you can even do this with your boss. What you do is you ask the person to meet privately. Then you briefly share with them how you feel, and then you shift the conversation immediately to a productive plan of alignment. Offer a suggestion to work together to achieve mutual goals. So if, you, if it's your boss, you could say, listen, I want to get promoted, and I'm guessing you do too. So I really hope that we can work together to meet our business goals and at the same time achieve our career goals. Of course, this conversation takes a lot of guts, but it's worked for me and for others. Back to Reza. Reza has already resigned, and now he's looking to create a narrative about why he's leaving and where he's going. My suggestion here is actually very simple. It's this. Keep it positive. Perhaps months ago, Reza may have tried to have a conversation with his boss. And after that, if his boss continued to blame him for things that he didn't do, 
He may have gone to HR, but now it's far too late for that. So my suggestion is keep it positive. There is absolutely no upside to speaking negatively about your old boss or your previous employer, period. Now we're gonna shift gears a little bit. The next question is from a woman named Timlin, who's a digital content creator in Nigeria. Hey, Andre, how are you? I just stumbled on your podcast and um, first of all, I'm very grateful that I did because it's really helpful. I am a presenter. Let me say I'm an upcoming presenter, but I find it very difficult to speak directly in the sense that I able to, I'm a Nigerian, so I able to tell me why do you, why is an accent? Why are you trying to copy people from the other world? Which I, I feel that I'm not doing. So I, w- I want to ask you that what can I do? And I have issues with pronunciation. And uh, I'm very good at what I say. Like, I'm a very good presenter, but I find it very hard communicating effectively. So what are the things I can do to get better? Thank you very much. Have a great day. First of all, I just want to say that I love your voice, Dimlin. Your question put a smile on my face, and I want to share an insight with you that I really hope is going to boost your confidence. And it's this. As long as people can understand what you're saying, as long as your words are clear and coherent, your accent will not be a problem. And let me tell you this, Timlin, your English is very clear and concise. Certainly, your accent is noticeable. But do you know what an accent is? It's a reminder to everyone of your unique background. And as a digital content creator, a unique background is a very good thing. For many, an accent is evidence of a global perspective. So instead of hiding your accent or trying to overcome it, my suggestion is that you celebrate it. You may even want to reference it explicitly when you're speaking. Talk about your accent. Okay, let me know how it goes. The next question we have is from an ambitious college senior. Listen to this. Hello, my name is Zachary. I'm a senior studying data science uh, at Purdue University, and this summer I have an internship at a large company. Uh, However, this company encourages several days per week uh, working from home, and I was really looking forward to networking uh, more this summer, but I'm finding it very difficult as many leaders and people I want to network with are not in the office. How can I effectively network in this new hybrid environment? Zachary, I can hear the ambition in your voice. I can also hear the frustration about the lack of opportunity to network with the folks in your organization where you're interning. So I have five, five different suggestions for you. And by the way, these suggestions go for everyone who's into networking, not just ambitious summer interns. Okay, the first is probably what you were expecting to hear. Make sure you're showing up in person whenever there's an opportunity to do so. That's the obvious one, especially if you're interested in growing your network. The second one is volunteering for special projects. Whether they're meeting face-to-face or online, you can meet more people if you're working on different projects. And I remember doing this when I was in exactly your shoes. I raised my hand when my boss asked who would volunteer for a special project, and I'm really glad that I did so. My third suggestion is proactively inviting the folks that you're working with to meet with you in the office, or maybe even offering to meet them at a coffee shop near their house. 
Oftentimes, as we all know, one of the main reasons for people not wanting to commute into the office is the commute itself. On the other hand, these people might be perfectly happy to meet you at a coffee shop that's around the corner from their house. So try that out. My fourth suggestion is to send a LinkedIn connection request to every single person that you're meeting in every single meeting that you attend. You could even include a comment like, I'm looking forward to meeting you later this afternoon. Or if you connect with them after a meeting, you could add a comment like, hey, it was a pleasure to meet you. By connecting with them on LinkedIn, you're creating another touch point with them. And assuming that your LinkedIn profile is up to date, you're sharing your professional identity with them. And furthermore, you also have the opportunity to learn a little bit about these people. So take the time to skim their profile and see what you might have in common. Perhaps you have a mutual connection or maybe they went to your school. Something like that that's conversation worthy. All right, my fifth and last suggestion is focused on your timing in online meetings. It's this, do your best to arrive a couple minutes early and similarly, don't be the first one to leave the meeting when it's over. So arrive early and stay late, even in online meetings. Here's the thing. One of the things that we're missing when we're working from home versus when we're meeting in person is the pre-meeting and the post-meeting banter. Some people say that this is when all the real action and decisions happen. And for you, this could be when your networking happens. So if you arrive a couple minutes early, you might strike up a conversation with someone and grow your network. Good luck, Zachary. The next question is from Carolyn Martin, a registered nurse. Good morning, Andrea. My name is Carolyn Martin. I am a registered nurse working in the field of medical surgical nursing. I am currently pursuing a degree in education for nursing. I'm reaching out to you because I came across your podcast and wanted to know if I can get some tips on how to better communicate the importance in obtaining communication skills for student nurses and how to develop a good therapeutic relationship with their patients. So, Carolyn is looking for suggestions about how to encourage her nursing students to focus more on their communication skills and specifically what they should be focusing on to improve their communication. Carolyn, I have one main suggestion for you here, and it's this. Focus on asking questions. Recently, I was coaching a dentist who had very similar challenges to this group of nurses, and we decided that asking lots of questions and getting patients to talk more and dentists, or nurses in this case, to talk less is effective and even powerful. I have to say, I'm very impressed with Carolyn's focus on communication skills for her nursing students. It sounds like they have a great nursing teacher in Carolyn. I wonder if together they could develop a list of questions or types of questions that they should ask different types of patients. And these questions could help optimize their communication with their patients and ultimately their diagnosis and their care for them. 
Okay. The next question was sent to me by someone who preferred to remain anonymous. Her question, I'm going to read to you right now. Why do men and women choose different topics in their conversations and interactions? I know it's like a cliche, but I've observed women talking about cooking and fashion and things like that, whereas men talk about politics and business. Why is this? Let me start by saying that while I certainly do not want to propagate sexist stereotypes, I definitely have noticed the same thing. And I did some research when I was studying gender differences in communication, and there's an interesting theory about why this might be the case. There is some research that demonstrates that women may tend to be more relationship-oriented and men may be more task-oriented. Of course, this is a generalization, and certainly these things are changing as our culture evolves. But you can imagine how these orientations or focus areas would affect our conversation topics, right? Okay, guess what? We're on to the last question. Hello, Andrea. I very much appreciate your tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what you've told them approach. I've used this effectively in many presentations, especially for executives. However, I often find it difficult to convince my colleagues and direct reports that this is a superior approach. They would really prefer to use the build up to a big reveal approach. Are there any studies that show which method is more effective? My name is Dan, and I'm an executive at a large pharma services organization. Thanks for your question. I love this question for so many reasons. The main reason is that I learned this lesson the hard way, and I have become a huge advocate for the tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them framework. But I understand where your people are coming from. We don't want to give away the punchline right out of the gates, right? Wrong. When I was a doctoral student at Harvard Business School, I vividly remember giving my first academic presentation. I was presenting the preliminary results of my dissertation to a group of fel fellow doctoral students and faculty. I worked hard to create awesome slides and I rehearsed my script until I had it down cold. I thought everything was going okay until about five minutes in when a senior faculty member raised his hand and asked me, Andrea, what's your point? I smiled and I told him, I'm getting there. A few minutes later, he stood up and yelled at me. I am not exaggerating. He bellowed across the room. Tell us your point or we're walking. Well, let's just say that I quickly went off script and I never made that mistake again. Always start by telling them what you're going to tell them. Listen, I understand this allure of suspense, of not wanting to give away your punchline. And in retrospect, this is exactly what I was trying to do in my first academic presentation. And in fact, this is a great strategy. Suspense is a very good thing. If you're dealing with fiction, or if you're writing a script for a TV show or a movie. However, if you're writing a business email or creating a business presentation or an academic presentation, you need to start with the big idea and tell them what you're going to tell them first. Why? Well, because half the people probably aren't even paying attention. They're not focusing. They're distracted or they're multitasking. We've all heard about all these things, right? Another reason could be that they simply don't care as much as you do about the topic. If you tell them what you're gonna tell them 
and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you've told them, then at least they hear it three times and it's more likely to be internalized. There's a framework in marketing and branding called the IATA framework. It's an acronym. A is awareness, I is interest, D is desire, and A is action, IATA. The theory is that people need to be exposed to a message multiple times to move up this hierarchy from awareness of your message to interest in it, to desire to act on it, and then to action. Think of your audience going through this process. You need to repeat your message to them multiple times, just like marketers and advertisers do. And I have a book recommendation for you, Dan. You might wanna share this with your folks. It's called Smart Brevity, and it's written by the three co-founders of Axios. This book advocates communicating in a way that's as concise and clear or brief as possible. Brevity means communicating in a way that is short, but not shallow. The authors provide an outline for how to optimize your communication, whether it's an email or a presentation or whatever the communication context is. You start with an attention grabbing headline. Then you share the one big thing, the main message that you want your audience to know. This is your punchline. This is the first thing you mention. This is the tell them what you're gonna tell them. The second thing these authors advocate you talk about is why it matters, why your audience should be interested in this concept or to learn more. Then they suggest that you go deeper. Going deeper is the tell them step of the framework, the second step that Dan was mentioning. I'll leave a link to this book in the show notes for you. Phew, that's it, we did it. As I said at the beginning, I think I'm gonna add this topic of how to tackle a Q&A as a topic for a future podcast episode. If you have any suggestions for episode topics, please bring it on. And if you have any communication skills questions for me, I would still love to hear your voice. Please go to talkabouttalk.com and click on record a message for Andrea, or you can always message me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and talk soon. Mm -hmm.